that remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning. We continue in the Gospel of St. Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ, and we come to chapter 15, and again, this morning, we're going to give an overview. So I have several passages of Scripture uh, that carry us through the chapter that I would ask you to uh, follow along and listen to, beginning in chapter 15 and verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and uh, scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And then down to verses uh, to verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had him scourged to be crucified. Verses 24 and 25. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them, to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Verses 33 and 34. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is to, uh, which is transferred, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Down to verse 37 through 39. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the temple, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Verse 43 Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 46, Then he, brought fine, he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Reading Mark's gospel as a story, chapter 15 brings the gospel paradox to an unsettling climax. Jesus has repeatedly, if you'll remember through the course of, of these chapters, Jesus has repeatedly confirmed and warned about his betrayal, false arrest, torture, and death, but promised resurrection that would take place at Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine if you were reading the gospel of Mark for the first time? What if you had no previous knowledge of, of the gospel? You'd heard something about Jesus or heard about uh, uh, the gospel story some, but you'd never really read it. And so you're reading the gospel of Mark for the first time, and you come to chapter 15. So while Mark's detailing the events culminating in Jesus' crucifixion and death are not a surprise to the reader, they are, however, shocking realities that cover the gospel in darkness. As we read these things here, I think we can get a sense of how this turns dark and how Jesus' disciples were also overshadowed by this. And this darkness can only be dispelled by the new covenant's realization that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember how Mark started out? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
So it is the new covenant ratified in Jesus' blood sacrifice that identifies his culminating crucifixion as more than another human execution. This would have been routine, as we well know, in uh, these historic times, and Roman times, in terms of crucifixion. As a matter of fact, there were two other criminals crucified along with Jesus. So how is it that Jesus' crucifixion is not just another human execution? Well, it's by his ratifying the new covenant that God had promised through his blood sacrifice. So the combined witnesses of Scripture and the supernatural phenomena that are recorded for us here in the Scriptures reveal the theological climax to the story of redemption from the curse of original sin in human history. That's what is before us here. Jesus ratifying the new covenant by his blood sacrifice. Jesus answering the theological issue of original sin in human history. And this is the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here in chapter 15. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is eclipsed by the death of death in the death of Christ. And we should be uh, stirred and, and troubled. There should be a, a sense of shadow come over us in reading of this story in its historical context. Now we, as believers, and historically have, have benefited and been blessed to hear the gospel repeatedly and to, to know the scope of Scripture. That, that shadow has been dispelled. But even when we come back and read it and consider it again, we should feel a sense of that darkness that was there and that was necessary in terms of our sin. Now I want to point something out to you that we will look more closely at next week, and that is we come to chapter 16 of Mark's gospel next week, and we're going to reveal why the resurrection is not the climax of the story. So I hope you'll be interested in that, but know the, the, the crucifixion here and that eclipsing, that, that darkness from the death of death and the death of Christ is the climax, but the climax is not the end of the story. So this morning we look at chapter 15 and we look at verses 1 through 5. Jesus subjected to worldly power, political exploitation, and moral injustice represented by the Roman civil governor Pilate. And again, you know the story. You know how the religious leaders of Jerusalem came and they uh, bound Jesus and they trumped up these charges, these false charges against him. But they deliver him over to the representative of worldly authority and power, Pilate, the Roman governor. And Jesus here has been subjected not only to false accusation from the Jewish uh, leaders, but now being given over to Pilate, we see that he is subjected to worldly power, to political exploitation. I mean, Pilate himself decides he wants to um, uh, gratify the Jewish leaders. He wants to quell an uprising. He wants to keep the uh, forced peace at the risk of even moral injustice. And so there's political exploitation in Jesus um, being falsely accused and executed. And this is the culmination of the scope of original sin. We tend to think of, of sin individually as well we should, but it's more than individual. 
The infestation of sin and its effects are in its scope throughout human existence and human history. It plays itself over and over again that we should see in worldly power, political exploitation and moral injustice. We see it displayed. We see it displayed in our own world today. And that's why we preach the gospel and say the only answer to these things is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a power greater than the power of the world. It's a power greater than original sin. And original sin and its scope and sequence in the human history manifests itself over and over and over again. Don't be surprised by the things that we're seeing in our day. One of my choice phrases comes from Dr. Van Til when he talked about the return of chaos and old night. The chaos philosophies of the false religions of the world. And the old night, the darkness that comes. One of the things that we're seeing in this whole uh, confusion about gender identity is connected to continuity of being and the false teachings of false religions that have always tried to throw off the restraints and the restrictions of God's created order. You can find it uh, all the way through from the ancient societies and ancient religions that are recorded for us in the Bible. The things that we're seeing are not new. They're playing out of the chaos philosophies and the old night of false religions of trying to escape God and to escape the consequences, the scope of original sin. We go on to verses 6 through 15 here in the Gospel of Mark and we see that Jesus is substituted for sinners demonstrated by condemning the guiltless Jesus to execution in the place of the guilty Barabbas being set free. How is that for human justice? How is that for the price of peace? We all feel that um, injustice. We feel that's wrong. When Pilate comes and says, oh, it's, it's a custom that I deliver uh, by clemency, I, I, I free a prisoner. And you want me to free the king of the Jews? And the chief priests stir up the people, no, crucify him, crucify him. Who do you want me to release? A known rebel and murderer. Barabbas, free Barabbas. And so we have portrayed for us, displayed for us here, a demonstration of the individual and the personal focus on redemption from sin. The guiltless for the guilty. So from the broad scope of Pilate using Jesus for worldly power, political exploitation, and moral injustice, we find here on an individual level there is a guilty murderer and, uh, and uh, insurrectionist, a criminal who is being freed, and Jesus, the guiltless one, is being executed. It can't be more plain than that. And we all need to understand our name is Barabbas. Before God, our name is Barabbas in our original sin. Coming to verses 16 through 32, Jesus submitted to human brutality and suffered inhumane hatred. What I've often said is what is displayed to us here is what the fallen humanity and rebellion against God 
and the devil in his maniacal hatred of God. This is what they would do if they could get their hands on God. What was done to Jesus is what they would do if they could get their hands on God. And so Jesus submitted to human brutality and suffered inhumane hatred, being God's image bearer, the Son of Man, a true human. Jesus suffers true pain and brutality in this, human, in this inhumanity, in this brutality, in the way he is treated. You need to understand, he felt every pain in his human body. He didn't somehow get out, have an outside-of-his-body experience. He didn't somehow uh, relinquish or separate himself from the beating and the whipping and the thorns and the brutal slapping and punching and the bloodletting. He did not immune himself to that. He was the Son of Man, a true human, and he felt every, every stroke of this brutality. But also, he is the incarnate Son of God. And so uniquely, he bears this suffering as the King of the Jews, the promised anointed one who is to come. That was the inscription that was given over his cross, the King of the Jews. And whether it was given for mockery or for whatever reason, it fulfills the prophecy and identifies Jesus indeed as the anointed Savior. It's only by saving faith and regeneration that Jesus' kingship is understood. You see, those unbelievers there mocked and scoffed. And of course, the religious leaders were incensed. Don't put that up there. Don't put that. And Pilate said, I put up what I put up. The king of the Jews. But it's only through saving faith by a regenerated heart and, and eyes that are opened in faith that you can see in the sacrificed, crucified Jesus, the Son of Man, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, the Savior, the anointed Savior. You can only see that by faith. Going on in verses 33 through 41, Jesus surrendered to God, not to death. I need to make that emphatic. Because Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished, and gave his soul up to the Lord. Lord, I commend my spirit to you. Jesus did not surrender to death. Death could not take him. Jesus voluntarily surrendered his life to God. And that's why Pilate was amazed when they came and said he's already dead. You know, in other gospel accounts, they came to break the legs of the other criminals that were crucified so that they would suffocate so that they could get it over with and everybody could go home. And they came to Jesus. He was already dead. And, and Pilate, in this account, when Joseph of Arimathea comes asking for Jesus' body, he's surprised. He's already dead? Why? Because Jesus surrendered to God his Father. He did not surrender to death. Through the ordeal of the crucifixion. And this ordeal of the crucifixion was attended by supernatural signs about shaking things in heaven and on earth. I'd mentioned that, that to you previously about what God is saying here. There are things being shaken, there are things being uh, mixed up, there are things being sorted out. Not just things on earth, but things in heaven also. And it's a wonderful passage and uh, teaching in the epistle to the Hebrews. I've given you some. Uh, 
cross-references there. I would encourage you today to go home and and read these cross-references in the epistle to the Hebrews about God shaking things up, not only on earth, but in heaven. And here, in the event of the crucifixion and this ordeal, as Jesus gives himself up to God the Father, there is darkness that comes over the land, you know. But that darkness passes, and Jesus then yields his spirit up to the Father. But that darkness was a supernaturally imposed uh, demonstration of what was happening in the eclipsing in Jesus' soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the human nature of the man Jesus, there was a, a sense of his abandonment from the gracious, loving favor of God the Father. Jesus became sin for us. This is the best description I can give you of Jesus crying out in this this cry of dereliction in his human nature, in his his bearing our sin's guilt. It's what the Apostle Paul says in that darkness and the eclipsing within Jesus' human soul. Jesus became sin for us. Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus who was guiltless. Jesus, the perfect Son of God. Jesus, the last Adam. Jesus, the anointed Savior. Jesus, the sin-bearing Lamb of God. Jesus who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so the darkness passes. Jesus gives up His soul to the Father and the veil of the temple, the separating veil, is torn from top to bottom saying it's over and done with. That temple is finished. All the earthly symbolism of those things are being shaken out. God is shaking them out. They're over and done with. And if you'll read in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, through the veil of his flesh, has entered into the holy place in heaven for us. See, that's what the true veil is. The the earthly veil was symbolic. But the glorified human nature of the resurrected Jesus Christ is the true veil as the only mediator, the only passageway between humans and God is the God-man. And then in verses 42 through 47, Jesus' body was sealed in a borrowed tomb. This also connects with Messianic prophecies as in Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. And this is for Christian believers' faith while facing the shadow of death. Jesus has gone through the valley of the shadow. Jesus has died, and he died for us. And he tells us that because of that, we will never, who are believers in him, in saving faith, we will never taste the death of separation from God. For Christian believers, death is a necessary change, but it's not a punishment. And because of what Jesus has done, even in death, you and I will never cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though we face the shadow of death, the Lord will never abandon us. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because Jesus suffered the guiltless for the guilty to bring us to God. 
So you see that in the climax of this story of the Gospel of Mark, we come to that overshadowing sense of the heaviness of what has happened. And that we are witnessing the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus has put away death by the sacrifice of Himself. And so while the story of Mark comes to its climax here, it's not where it ends. Mark's Gospel chapter 15 ends, the chapter 15 ends with Jesus' body buried in a borrowed tomb. But that's not the end of the story. The darkness over the land during Jesus' crucifixion lifted before his final words and his voluntary death. But for his disciples, a cloud of gloom is like an eclipse in their souls. They're overshadowed with a gloom that is darkening the light of the gospel. It hasn't put the light of the gospel out, but it's overshadowed the gospel light as they now wonder what has happened. Jesus has died and Jesus is buried. However, the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was a theological and covenantal necessity which Mark's gospel has been directly revealing from the very beginning. Chapter 1. We spent over a year going through the Gospel of Mark, coming and building up to this climax of chapter 15. And do you connect it? Can you begin to understand it? Can you see theologically and covenantally it was necessary for Jesus to die? But that's not the end of the story. So while things come to a a climax here, we return next week to chapter 16. And here we hear the end of the story. And that is which we hold on to and which we always preach and proclaim. Even though we face the darkness. Even though we see the darkness of the world around us. Even though we are incensed by the worldly power, the political exploitation and the moral injustice. But we must preach to others what we have heard ourselves, and that is, we are the guilty ones. Jesus is the one who is guiltless. We are the sinners. Jesus is sinless. We must have a go-between us and God. If we come to God on our own terms, we are guilty, guilty, guilty. But only in Jesus can we be declared absolved. Your sin is removed. And you have entrance and acceptance with God the Father. And you will never hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus has done it for you. And Jesus' dead body buried in a borrowed tomb isn't the end of the story. Although that's where the world of unbelievers wants to stop. But we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ continue. We continue to hold out the promise beyond his death and the necessity theologically and covenantally of Jesus cleansing our sin, dying in our place. And that's what this Lord's Supper says. 
It says that Jesus came in a body like ours. True humanity, Son of Man, in this bread is represented the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came like us, one like us and yet one unlike us. In this cup is represented the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was a blood that did not come from a human father because Jesus was born miraculously without a human father, without being a descendant of Adam. Though he was a true human through the human nature of Mary, he did not inherit original sin. And yet he was in a weakened, fallen condition without the guilt of sin that he might live a virtuous, sinless, substitutionary life and death to cover all of our sins. Can you imagine Jesus covering just one of our sins? I don't mean one sin, just one person's sin. I mean, Jesus covers all my sins. But it doesn't end there. He covers all your sins. That's the virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus... Being human would substitute for humans. He had to be human to substitute for humans. The blood of animals can't do it. The blood of bulls and goats and the lambs and all the human or all the uh, animal sacrifices. None of the sacrifice of animals equals a human. Animals are not humans. Are not made in the image of God. There's so much theology from Scripture that answers the confusion of our current world and society. Humans are God's image bearers. Jesus came as the Son of Man, a true human, to substitute for humans. You're not a dog. You're not a pig. You're not a squirrel. You're not your favorite bird. You are an image bearer of God, and so are all humans. This has become my mantra. All humans are made in the image of God, and all humans need Jesus as their Savior. That's the scope of the gospel. And this cup represents Jesus' blood as untainted by sin. Jesus never sinned. He was sinless. And so when we observe this Lord's Supper, we're saying Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed again. Jesus once and for all gave his life a ransom for our redemption. And now we remember that and we proclaim it. And in this we say, only saving faith. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and has been raised from the dead, you will be saved. And in this Lord's Supper, we take up the words of institution and we confess them in our actions We believe Jesus is the God-man, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He is the only Savior of sinners. And He has once and for all done what was necessary for our salvation. And therefore, we will never be abandoned. We will never hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as Jesus says, I am with you and will continue with you. Nothing can separate you from me throughout your life, in your death, and for all eternity. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is more real to us by faith than these elements are to our physical senses. And it is by his words of institution that he tells us so.
And so if we have identified with the Lord Jesus in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and if we are members of of a church that says, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and we're not harboring unconfessed sin, resentment, and unforgiveness against others, because Jesus says, if you don't forgive everyone else their sins against you, neither will my Father in heaven forgive you. So are you letting go sin, bitterness, resentment, offenses? And do you forgive your enemies as God has forgiven you? We have hard things that are around us. Hard things that represent worldly power and political expediency and and injustice, moral injustice. It's all around us. We're living in the darkness of the fallen world, but we are to bear light, the light of the gospel and our hope that extends beyond this life because of our living union with Jesus Christ. As our elders prepare the table, we'll turn to our